Hey, Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Galatians chapter 3 as we continue in our series, No Other Gospel. So for several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Galatians, this letter in which Paul writes to these Galatian churches and is ultimately concerned with this reality that they've turned away to another gospel. That the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection is ultimately something the Galatian church is, is starting to veer from and really moving toward the place of works righteousness. There's this group of people, these Judaizers, who have come in and said, look, here's the reality. You want to be in God's family. You want to be connected to God. You want to have a relationship with God in Christ. That's, that's amazing. Faith's important, but you also need this heritage, this lineage, these other works, these things, you want to, you got to really go back and be one of the people of God. you got to do Jewish stuff even if you want to be a Christian. Paul has been pushing against this and helping these believers understand the gospel in its fullness and continually reminding them that one is saved by grace through faith, that salvation comes through Faith. We're going to pick up today in chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, on the heels of a detailed explanation of what the law cannot do for them, but what Christ has done. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, we're going to read through 4-7. It says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are all Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. So I've got this fascination lately with the idea as a society um, that we're into stuff that's limited edition. Stuff that is really special and really unique. Um, so I'm a sucker for um, things that are new. And so I and Mia can attest to this. There's been times when we're like, it's like, it's bedtime. We're in bed. We're, we're going to bed. And I've seen the Taco Bell commercial for the new item. And I've like gotten out of bed to go get it. And it's like, this, this is a safe place. I can confess with brothers and sisters. All right. I'm not proud of it. I'm just telling you reality here. Okay. But here's the thing about the Taco Bell deal. It's, it's, they have this menu item that's for a limited time only, but you know the reality. It's all the same five ingredients, or six, because now they didn't used to have like Fritos and Doritos when we were kids and this stuff, but now that's like part of the deal. But it's like, you know, it's like the double wrap steak chalupa tortilla thing or whatever, right? And it sounds delicious, and we all want one now, right? But it's a limited time only. You got to catch it while it lasts. 
And there's all kinds of things in the world that are like that. The McRib. Is it a rib? It's not, but people love it. So if you're judging me on my Taco Bell, like, don't, you know, just don't cast the first McRib. Um, Look, we like things and we're intrigued by things that are only available for a limited time, things that are around for a short time. Even more so, one of the things that I've noticed about our largely, like, exclusive secular selfish society is the growth in stuff that's not only limited time only but is limited edition like there's one of everything in the world that's limited edition right now like there's there's a limited edition forerunner like i like i don't know why we need to limit cars if people need cars like why can't we have more cars but there is a limited edition Take it from stuff like that all the way through the, the way items are made and how in boutique fashions and ways people are saying you got to get one of these because it's the special, it's the unique, it's limited, it's relegated to, it's kind of only a few in number. And here's the thing that's unique about things that are limited edition. They're special. And everybody wants a piece of something that's special. But more so than it being special because it's limited edition, it's actually really special, not just because you have it or because you possess it. You know where the, the value comes from? The value comes from the fact that not just that you possess it, but that other people can't. What makes something limited edition is not just that you can have this special thing, it's that other people don't get to have that special thing that you have. That's what makes it limited edition. When Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 3 verse 26, he's really pushing back against the idea of these Judaizers and Jewish Christians who are saying in so many ways that like we are the limited edition of God's people. We're the ones that have this exclusive right to be the very people of God because we're Israel. We have the heritage, we have the history, we have the books of the law and the prophets and wisdom literature. This is what we live by. This is our life. And so in a world where Paul has been walking toward, hey, you're justified by faith, not by where you're from or not by what you've done. Instead, you're justified by faith in what Christ has done on your behalf. There's this group of people pushing back and saying, it can't be this way. We're special. We're unique. We've got this thing that nobody else has. And Paul, from the jump here in verse 26, is going to use language that challenges that and says that that's not the case because he uses some of the most inclusive language we find in the New Testament when he uses this phrase, for all are sons of God. All are sons of God. Look into verse 26, and this is what you see. Paul says that they're all sons of God, anyone who is in Christ. So we're going to see even more as we walk down into verse 28, but there's there's a distinction that Paul is making, not with a number of different groups, but only two groups, those who've trusted Christ and those who've not. And he said, if you've trusted Christ through faith, then you are a son of God. Here's the rub. Here's why people that were Jewish Christians would be deeply offended by this because that phrase, sons of God, historically was one that was applied exclusively to Israel. Exclusively to them. 
That limited group, nobody else, they were known as sons of God. And now Paul is, in a revolutionary way, taking this phrase that was attributed to this minority and not just giving it to the majority, he's giving it to everyone who's trusted in Christ. Absolutely everyone now, if you are in Christ through faith, you are a son of God. Paul's saying that the Gentiles now enjoy the benefit of this nomenclature, this name, this phrase now applies to them. How can that be? It's because Christ is the one who makes us righteous. Paul's also doing another revolutionary thing in this moment where he uses the language of son. Because in our day and age, in our culture, it's very natural for someone to read a passage like this and say that, that to call people sons of God is perhaps uh, chauvinistic or misogynistic or doesn't, doesn't embrace or value women at all. And in fact, it, by, by the absence of daughters here, it puts them down. But here is the reality historically, and you need to listen to this and hear this very clearly. This is Keller writing on the book of Galatians, and he says this, In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, the word son meant legal heir, which was a forbidden status to women. But the gospel tells us we are all sons of God in Christ. We are all heirs. So Paul's doing this other revolutionary thing where it seems like he's only talking about men, and he's, and, he, and he's not including women, that's not true. What's actually happening in this moment is he is elevating the status of women and saying that, that now there's no distinction. Once you're in Christ, we're all in this, we're, we're on level field at the foot of the cross. Everyone is an heir. Everyone receives the benefit, the promise, the life that comes from Christ Jesus. So what Paul's doing here is wild. This is crazy stuff. He's saying, you don't understand. Everybody is a son of God. And yes, that means even, ladies, even people who in this society, unfortunately, were not looked at and treated equally. No, in Christ, they are equal. All are equal. All. And where does this come from? Not through what somebody's done, not through something they've accomplished, only through faith in what Christ has done on their behalf. Paul, in the next verse, in verse 27, as he tries to remind them, look, don't fall back into this way. Don't, don't be bewitched. Don't be tricked. Don't slip back into this former life that you've led where, you, where you've worked and used the law as a justifier to have a relationship with God. You've based your merit on things that you've done according to the teaching of God. Instead, no, trust in faith. And he calls them back to a very particular moment to help them remember who they are. I don't know if you're like me or if you've walked through a season in life where you've had perhaps, if not a crisis of faith, a crisis of identity. The place you find yourself in might lend itself to say, I don't know if I know who I am. I don't know if I like who I am. I don't know if, if, if what I've done has changed my relationship with other people and, 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 and maybe I'm not what I want to be in, in a moment like that, if we have a voice of wisdom in our life, they will direct us to key moments in our life that, that define, that mark, that said, this is who you are. 
And this is what Paul is seeking to do in this moment with the Galatian church. He's saying, go back to your baptism. Why does he do that? Look at verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. What's Paul saying in this moment? He's calling them to the moment where they've trusted in Christ Jesus and were baptized. What is baptism? Well, it's a picture. It, it's, it's not only of one's personal response to faith in Jesus Christ and following the ordinance and command of Jesus, but it's also of the new community that belongs to Christ by grace alone. This is what Timothy George would say, that, that this, is, this is baptism for Paul in this moment. He's not just pointing them to their personal moment of baptism. He's saying, hey, when you trusted in Christ, when you repented of your sins, when you experienced new creation, when you were baptized, when you were buried in that water in the likeness of the Lord's death and raised to walk in newness of life, that imagery is not just for you, it's also for the body. It's also that you're connected now to these other people who've identified as ones who are allegiant to, who have trusted in Christ. That that defines all that they are. Why is it important for Paul to say this? He's saying this, don't you understand? Your identity has been redefined. Not just personally, but corporately with others. You now, as the people of God, are marked by grace through faith, not by works. Not by your obedience to the law. Paul is concerned in this moment to teach new creation. That's what he longs for these to hear. He says, you put on Christ. That means that you've taken on the mantle of not just identifying with him, but pursuit of trust and rest in him and being transformed into his character. Being changed. So much so that now you're a part of something. You're a part of this body that is all in Jesus and lives by faith. And now he's going to tease out and draw out even more of the distinction why faith is the definer of who we are. What Christ has done defines who we are, not the things that the world tells us. Look into verse 28 and it says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a phrase that sounds like the attempt is, man, let's, let's really unify these people. Let's help these people understand that they're not so different. That they're more alike than they think. While those things are true, Paul recognizes that these three categories divided people in this day and age. And it still divides you and me today. Look at these three categories. They are ethnic, economic, and relative to gender or sexuality. Three big categories. Where people, and hear me, like really hear this. If we're not believing the gospel, this is where you will find your identity. This is where the world tells you you can create and shape and make your own identity. From an ethnic standpoint, where you're from, your culture, in this day and age to the people to whom Paul is writing, it meant everything. Your lineage, the people that you came from, this line, like quite literally a bloodline, the place from which you came and this is why these Jewish Christians are so concerned with, with being connected to Abraham. 
to being a part of truly God's people. And Paul's begging him to see, don't you understand, if you're in Christ, you're in Abraham and everything that comes along with it. But it's found in Christ. Well, the world is telling these people that where they're from, literally where and who they're from, defines them. Moreover, it's telling them that what they have defines them. Slave or free, one who is wealthy or one who is poor. You and I do a good job this day and age as well of defining ourselves in these categories. As having or not having. Some of us have got the limited edition stuff. And as a result, we think we're all right. We're going to be okay. Because there's some sort of material accumulated wealth that can define us and give us comfort. To make us feel like we matter. Paul's reaching toward the same thing in this day. This idea that, that my economic status, my socioeconomic status, is going to define me. Finally, gender, sexuality. He describes male and female. And, and largely, two things are happening in this moment. It's very clear that in the, in the style of writing here that Paul has Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 26 and 27 in mind. That God has created beautifully, providentially, in an amazing way, both male and female. But Paul's saying that that is not the primary place from which one would receive identity. That that's not the place where you receive identity. It is not loss on you and me that the, the world has, like in this season of life, it seems as if the world has thrust itself to this direction, this place to find or create identity with gender and sexuality. That if I'll just, I'll just do what I want or be whatever I want, and that will define me. All of the things that we experience in these three categories are not in and of themselves bad things. But sin has perverted them. From an ethnic standpoint, people have been manipulated and wounded and hurt with regard to the pride that comes from people's ethnicity. What about economically? The sin of greed has transformed people into those who oppress others to have more. Finally, with gender and sexuality, we've seen in our society and throughout history, people oppressing one another, abusing power. Paul says, don't you understand that in Christ Jesus, these things don't go away I'm a white male. Before I trusted Christ, you're not going to believe this, I was a white male. After trusting Christ, that didn't change. But it isn't the main thing that identifies me. It's not the thing that defines who I am. These things can be characteristics, but they're not everything. And Paul's saying that you are all one in Christ Jesus, and the distinctions that you think you see are less distinct than you can imagine. 
because of who you are in Christ. You're one body. And this is what he says in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And this is the place where Paul is going in this next section. And this is what he longs for people to understand. That they are heirs according to promise. That these Jewish Christians, these Judaizers, have come and into the church and ultimately said, in order to be an heir, in order to receive promise, one must live out and follow the law. One must be circumcised. One must celebrate these feast days. One must was, uh, do all of these types of things in order to truly be connected to Abraham. But think about what Paul has done leading up to this place. Think about each week as we've walked through this, just the, the, the general theme of what Paul is doing. He's saying, you're following another gospel, but there is no other gospel. Several weeks ago, Ben walked us through the reality that, that Paul is, is angry with them and he's communicating to them that they don't understand. That they've traded faith for works. In so many ways. Even last week, Clay did this incredible job of articulating what Paul is doing in this moment where he's walking people from the promise of Abraham through the law that's given to Moses. Now that promise is realized through faith in Jesus Christ. That the law, which points to Jesus, ultimately does not produce what it demands. That we cannot fulfill the law. We cannot keep the law. That the law and its teaching point us to this beautiful God that we have sinned against, that we have rebelled against, that we have turned from. And in this moment, Paul, when he describes heirs, he's talking about people who long to have that which is promised to them. Who long to have the life that is given to them. And here's what's happening in this moment as we walk toward chapter 4, verse 7. These Jewish Christians are trying to convince the Galatian church that you need to adopt this way of life. And Paul is imploring them, he's begging them to understand this. You do not adopt a way of life, life adopts you. You do not adopt this way of life. Instead, life, God himself, is going to adopt you. Look into verse 1 through 3 of chapter 4, and you're going to see Paul walk through this analogy. It's one of guardianship. Uh, as Clay expressed last week, we walked through this understanding of the law as guardian. And here, Paul takes that guardianship language and he transfers it to one of a relationship in a familial way. Specifically, in this society, in this context, one of a son and a father. And he describes and says that we are like heirs. And this is what he means by it. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Here's what he means. A child is legally heir. Everything that belongs to their father ultimately belongs to them. But because he is a minor... He lives like a slave. And that just means not with total freedom and autonomy, but under rules. So we do this weird thing where I bet you guys have this at your home too. As parents, we have all these rules at our house. Does anybody have a home where they have rules for their kids? Ours is unique because we have a bunch, but nobody follows them. So 
we might be kind of shifting our philosophy here soon. Um, but look, our kids are not slaves, obviously. But yet, they cannot make decisions and just decide to walk out into the street without our okay. There's a level of care that we have over them where we are their guardians. There are things that they have not matured into yet. There are things, structures that have been put into place to care for them. And this is how Paul describes the former way of life. He says, talking about this area, he says, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, here's the reality. And this is like one of my favorite things about being a parent. It truly is. Is having our kids' friends say, I'm going to Millie's house or Clover's house. I, I, I love it. It's amazing. But that phrase is wild. It's crazy. Because Clover doesn't, I, I, she's cute. She sang great. Not going to get approved for a mortgage. She we're working on it, but she doesn't have the credit history quite yet, okay? But really, everything she has or everything we have is hers. It's Clover's house. It's not, it's not not Clover's house yet. It's not, hey, Clover, we'll wait to see when you turn 18 and how everything kind of works out, and then we'll, we'll kind of come up with an agreement, and then, you know, then we'll call it your home. No, it's Clover's house. It's Millie's house. Why? Because everything that we have is hers. Everything that we have is theirs. And this is what Paul is saying. But he's also looking at verse 3, saying that when we were children, we were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. In that same way, there, was, there were things that were above us, things that we were underneath. One, he's talking about and alluding to sin. But also, he's talking about the reality of the elementary principles of the world of living in a, in a place and a time under the law. Living in the structures of the world under the law. And in verse 4, it seems like out of nowhere, we get maybe the most succinct and beautiful, simple gospel phrase ever. God sent his son. Paul says, this happened when the fullness of time had come. Now, to understand what Paul's meaning in, in that is he's saying that this is the culmination of a time. And he's also describing it in, in the church world. We'd say this is the eschatological view. What he's saying is he's like, this is a future, present-involved view of the ramifications of everything in the cosmos coming together in this one pivotal, perfect, providential moment. That the fullness of time that had come, that God is intentional, and you're going to see it through the rest of this text, but you've got to see this and know this and believe this, that God is intentional. That these things did not just happen. That Jesus didn't just... Have, God intentionally, providentially, in a sovereign, perfect way, ordained this moment in time for His Son to come. Why does that intentionality matter? As we walk, we're going to see. The fullness of time had come, and look at this action. God sent forth his son, and these two things that clarify and, and, and show us why God sent his, or how, rather, God sent his son. Two things, one born of woman, and the other born under the law. One born of woman. Why does he say that? Paul is communicating and reminding these believers 
of the Christ that was crucified before him and the life that he lived, he's saying that because he was born of woman, he was coming into the world, although otherworldly, he was coming into the world in a normal way. This is what he's saying in this moment, that Jesus was truly human. Now, hear this. Doctrinally, we also believe truly divine. But the human part is incredibly important. Why? Because Jesus came to redeem true humans like you and me. People of flesh and bones and skin and cartilage and all the other stuff that's yucky, right? Jesus came to redeem us. How does he do it? How does God in his infinite wisdom come and redeem humans? By coming as a human. It is through that that he can truly redeem us. Also this, who are are born rather under the law. This is the only way to free those who are subject to the curse of the law is to be born under the curse of that law and yet fulfill it completely. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He fulfills the law completely. And as a result, now you and I can receive through his life and his death, his resurrection, standing as those who are fully righteous, not because of what we've done in respect to the law, but because we take on what he imputes to us, his righteousness in the law. All that, and look down into verse 5 if you have the text before you, with deep purpose because two things happen here. Ultimately, it's one thing that happens, and there's an implication that comes from the first thing happening. But you're going to see these two clauses and see the importance in them. It's a normal question to, to think, man, I've been reading the Bible my whole life. I've been, I've been, I, I wake up in the morning, I open the scriptures, and I read these ancient texts. Like, I read, like, sometimes we forget these are ancient texts text that we're reading, a a modern English translation of an ancient text, and we wake up and we open the scriptures, and quite often we're frustrated with ourselves or we're disappointed because we're like, I don't don't understand everything that I just read. I don't comprehend everything that's in that passage. I don't know exactly what that means. Paul in this moment is giving us a softball. He's just throwing up and saying, this is it. It boils down to this. This is the purpose. God sent his son at the fullness of time under these ramifications that he was born of a woman and born under the law, all for this purpose. Look at these two lines. To redeem those who were under the law. This is the purpose. You read your Bible, you have questions, you exist as a human being in the world, and and, and it is a normal thing to say, what does this all mean? This is what it means. This is the, the, what the gospel means. What is the purpose behind what God has done in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the Spirit? What is all this? What is it? What is it for? It's for this, to redeem those who were under the law. To take people, not just of a Jewish background who were under the law, but all of us who were subject to law and say, you are are redeemed from this. You are free from this. I will take on the curse for you in order that you might have life, that you might live. So that we might receive adoption as sons. 
so that you might experience adoption. And in this moment, Paul is categorically saying that it doesn't matter where you come from or how righteous you think you've been or how you've made yourself distinct, how you said, hey, I got the limited edition faith. I came from the right place, the right time, and all the right people, and I did all the right stuff. And all these other people out here are heathens, right? And they haven't done what I've done, and they haven't been to church like I've been to church, and they don't have verses memorized like I have, and they, don't, they haven't done all of these things. Paul's saying, look, there's no separate group. You're all in this one group together because you all must be adopted. Every one of you, if you're in sin, you've rebelled against the Father, and you're fatherless. You're broken in your relationship, and Paul says that we might receive, this is why Jesus comes, that we might receive adoption as sons. That you might be adopted. And then look into verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're not a slave anymore, but if a son, and if you're a son, then you're an heir. So what does all this mean? Paul's saying if you are in Christ, then everything that's Abraham's is yours. You're connected to Abraham as much as anybody. You know why? Because more than that, you're in Christ Jesus. We have a home and we have two little girls and everything in that home is theirs. How much more do you have because of what God has given you in Christ? Everything, absolutely everything, there is no thing that is not yours. So quit living life under the law, under a promise that's already been fulfilled. It's already been given to you. All the life, all the love, all the mercy, all the grace, all the forgiveness. You are, there's somebody in here this morning and you are in this place and you're like, I can't, I, you, God cannot forgive me for this. He already has. He's done that for you. And Paul is imploring these people, believe it. Just go believe it. Go trust in what Christ has done. You, I'm sorry, you're just not good enough. You're not even good enough at sin to undo what Christ has done. That's what he's saying in this moment. He's saying, don't you get it? Everything that's his is yours. Absolutely everything. You're not a slave. You're a son. And he uses this language that's really powerful. It's Abba, Father. And we've heard our whole life, and look, it's just the worst. It just doesn't mean daddy, okay? That's just what it means. It's just not daddy. It's not. Um, it means something deeper than that. Ultimately, this language was used with children claiming inheritance. Whether you look back in Mishnah and a bunch of old Jewish writings, you're going to see that this language was really, really used in a lot of legal proceedings regarding one taking possession of everything that was one's father's. So the moment and, and the language that Abba would be used in is such, it's not just one of endearment, it's actually more than that. It's one of accepting the finality of a life lived with someone with deep intimacy and receiving everything that comes with it. It's powerful, powerful, powerful language. Timothy George says it this way. It's about intimacy more than it is infancy. It's not just taking childlike language or the posture of a child, but it's about the intimacy, the relationship 
That's what God has afforded us. And look at the theological understanding that we get from this, the Trinitarian picture that we get in the New Testament in verse 6. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. What does that mean? That means that when we read in Romans 5 that God has poured out His love to us in the form of His Spirit in in, in Romans chapter 5, when we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that we're marked with a deposit, that this language is not figurative, that the Holy Spirit actually indwells us. Truly. Not in like like a metaphorical way, no, like in a real way. And you say, I don't feel that right now. And I can say, guess what? Me either. It doesn't matter. That doesn't make it untrue. This is what the Lord has done. That God in his providence has sent the Spirit into our hearts. In the same way, look back up into verse 4. God sent forth his Son. So the Spirit indwells us because of what God has done. He has sent the Spirit into us if we trusted, repented, and believed in Christ. This is the last thing. This language of being an heir and no longer a slave, this language of union with Christ and now unity with one another, there's, all these distinctions are gone because of what we've experienced in God. Specifically, some of the child language of being an heir. All of this stuff sounds like, yeah, that's God's stuff. God's got to do that stuff. I want to show you the power in this, there's a guy named Dane Ortland who writes on Psalm 68, and he illuminates what Paul is trying to say here in this moment. And this is for the canon, this is for all of Scripture. But he's talking about the character and the heart of the God who has made us heirs, who has saved us, who has adopted us. What difference does it make that God is both mighty and merciful, both powerful and gentle? He says it's of the greatest magnitude, all the difference in the world. It means he is able to deliver us from all our difficulties and sins. And it means, this is wild, it means that he enjoys delivering us. If he were mighty but not merciful, he could save us but would not. If he were merciful but not mighty, he would like to save us but could not. And in Jesus, we see these two realities of who God is merge beautifully. Jesus is both lion and lamb, both omnipotent and gracious. He can be trusted. We can bank everything on him. Don't miss this. He can rescue you, and he wants to. He wants to rescue you. This is not just God adopting because that's God's stuff. That's what God does. No, this is flowing from the heart of God. He sends his son to you and I. To be the curse, to take on the curse so that we can be free. So that we can be a part of the family of God. So that we can have everything that is His. Do you know this morning when these children sang, one of these precious children was adopted. One of these kids was an adopted child. Who had no family. Who who did not have family. And somebody that's a family that's in our church came and, and stepped in. And loved and cared for and then adopted this child. It wasn't just that they could, that they had the power, that they had the freedom, that they had their ability economically or in their home to do it. It's not just that they could do it, it's that they desired to do it. They wanted to do it. 
This is the power and the beauty of the gospel, that God doesn't just come after you. He wants to. And he gave his own son. So the opportunity for us this morning is to embrace that and enjoy that and just relish in that. To just believe it and trust in it. This is miraculous. That we were lost and now found. That we were dead and now alive. That we didn't have any family. And now God has made us his own. And that everything that belongs to the perfect, righteous son that he's given us, that's ours too. That changes absolutely everything. Why? Because now you and I are sons and daughters of God. That's who we are. We are in God's family. That ought to cause us to rejoice. So this morning, we're going to take a moment and we're going to sing that beautiful truth. If, if the Lord is working on your heart and you are beginning to believe the gospel or you have questions about your faith, you have questions about grace, you have questions about law, um, Myself, Clay, Brian, Paxton, others will be here, pastors and elders, to, to minister to you at the conclusion of this service. Look, you may have heard these words today, and you may recognize that, okay, there's a really distinct connection between faith and baptism. Here will be my encouragement to you, and I say this boldly to you. If you've trusted in Christ and repented of your sins, you believed in Jesus, Paul says you don't come to faith by baptism. No, it's faith, or faith alone. But he makes it very clear that for the Christian we identify, we follow Christ's command, we're baptized. I would urge you, if you're not baptized, come be baptized. Come find us after the service, and we won't do it right now. We'll talk about it for a minute. We'll let you get a change of clothes, all right? But come and say, look, I want to be baptized. I want to be baptized. And then finally, look at this passage and know that you're a son or a daughter, not because of where you come from, because of what you have or what you don't have, or because what you have been created as beautifully in the image of God, male or female. Your identity flows from Christ. You're a son or daughter of God. Let that change everything. If you will, bow your head and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are yours that we have a relationship with you. God, we're marked by your spirit that you sent into our hearts only because we have believed in your son who you sent. Father, this is the good news for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Would that allow us to walk into freedom today? Living under the law of love. Father, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.